Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Hello, Jack. How are you doing this fine evening? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Alec. I notice we're uh, we're both in our, our Jedi and Padawan outfits tonight, you know, in, in the spirit of Ahsoka airing at the minute. Uh, yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. It's obviously winter now. It's getting cold. So we started wearing hoodies rather than paying the bills. Um, it's more like Jedi and Sith, I think. You're looking a bit evil, yeah. to be honest. You should have said hello there at the start, and that would have been much funnier. Such a terrible, terrible reference, but I love it. Um, yeah, so today's episode is an interesting one. I can see Jack smiling because he's super excited to talk about this one. Today we're talking about another controversial topic, decentralization. Yeah, this is a, a really, I think it's really interesting, actually. And it is a bit controversial because, again, lots of different opinions on it. Um, but that's why I'm glad we're covering it. I think uh, I think we'll we'll be able to tease out a bit of a definition and uh, and explain the various viewpoints on it. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I should go first this time because I always put you on the spot, Alec, and, and try and <laughs> explain what decentralization is. Um, so for me, it, it's quite simple actually. If if something is decentralized, then you normally use the the term to describe a system. So like something like Bitcoin or a blockchain is a system, it has rules and participants in it. And decentralization is the quality of a system that it doesn't have a central point of failure. And to me, that's mm. pretty much the, the the main definition you should use for, for this term. Yeah, I think it's nice, nice and concise and simple. Are you telling me that decentralization isn't about anarchism and, you know, anti-elite and anti-government, all this kind of stuff? I feel like that's what you're alluding to. But no, I'm being facetious. Um, Jack's right. Uh, decentralization, I think, is kind of misused in a, a lot of this space. And I think the, the, word, the word really is more of a, in my mind anyway, the way I use it is from the technical kind of perspective. And if we're thinking about how decentralization applies to blockchains or, you know, cryptocurrencies was the last episode we did, how it applies to that. It's all about distributing that ledger, the ledger, which is, you know, we can describe it as that Excel sheet that stores all the transactions, having multiple copies of that Excel sheet or that ledger at different points and you know different people, different entities, different nodes, PCs, whatever you want to call them. And that effectively means resilience, right? So if when Jack talks about single points of failure, if I just have one version of my Excel sheet and all of a sudden my computer goes down and gets wiped, that Excel sheet's gone forever. But if I have 10 
versions of that Excel sheet, all with the exact same copy, all live, all working together to make sure they're running the exact same Excel sheet. And one of them goes down. Well, that's fine. I've got nine backups. So there's no single point of failure. And that's what Jack is trying to talk or get across when we say single point of failure, right, Jack? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you use the word distributed there as well, because this is there's a very fine distinction between mm. decentralization and distribution distribution or something that's decentralized versus just distributed. Because um, I think we tend to use the word decentralized in the context of kind of open permissionless systems like blockchains where you have people can come and come and leave and, and it's it's an open protocol um and decentralization because there are different flavors of decentralization actually as well we'll come on to but um mm -hmm. really the meaningful sense is kind of decentralization of power so who has the power to okay. to update the blockchain for example who has power to to change the system and this if something is distributed it's more tends to mean in in the flavor of it's like a distribution of resources, um, having backups, mm. the local copies. And Bitcoin does a bit of this both, but you can have a distributed system that is centralized from a power perspective. You know, like if you think of mm -hmm. uh, something like Facebook or Twitter or Amazon, they they are operating massive distributed systems because they have servers and, and, and uh, data centers across the world, which are kind of keeping local backups and things. So, so you know, decentralization for me is much is much more apt in a, in an open blockchain type context. Got you. So like my understanding of the white paper, which is obviously the Bitcoin white paper, is that it actually doesn't use the term decentralization, right? But it does use the term distributed. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. I, I, it's an interesting observation. Don't right? pretend yeah. like you don't know it word for word. <laughs> like pretend you think so. It's on his wall somewhere, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I have to be coy about these things. But yeah, I, I do know it pretty well. <laughs> It talks about the word honest much more than it talks about um, anything like decentralization. And, and actually, that's an interesting point, is that a lot of people, when they talk about Bitcoin and, and, and similar blockchain systems, they I've, I've often heard people say the whole point of Bitcoin is decentralization. They say it's the the end Right. And, 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 and all, all this, they might sometimes just say it's the means to the end as well. But they say that's the core point of it. And I have always thought mm -hmm. of decentralization as more of an emergent property. So Bitcoin has this design that enables, you know, peer to peer electronic cash. And mm -hmm. as a result of how it's designed, it is it is always uh, decentralized in, in the, in the mm -hmm. power sense. It's not like, oh, it must be decentralized and that's the end goal. No, it's the end goal is digital cash. And as a result, of doing that properly, it, it ends up having to be decentralized. Well, this is something actually, actually do want to talk about in more detail. So you're saying that Bitcoin has to be decentralized. You know, I think when you talk about the the kind of the power and power in say a, a blockchain network or a Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrencies that we tend to talk about, power. People think that, that you know the power is decentralized and all the people are contributors to the network. If you own a Bitcoin, then you are part of the power dynamic that runs the Bitcoin network, right? And then what was that thing about um, Raspberry Pis? You can mine the Raspberry Pi and you can contribute to the network. But this is this isn't true, is my understanding. It's that it's actually the miners who control the network, right? They are effectively the people in power. And when everyone says, if you've got any Bitcoin or you're running a Raspberry Pi and you're contributing to the, the BTC network, 
that's not in fact true. It's the miners, and it's far more centralized than people think. If you've got ten thousand, you know, nodes on BTC or whatever it is, really all the mining power. It's actually the the network administrators who are contributing to that ledger. We can think about the miners as being the people that actually own the Excel files and are appending to the Excel files to update the ledger and contribute to the ledger using proof of work. They're actually the people with the power. So it's far less decentralized than people tend to think. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is where that kind of main controversy comes in is people will sometimes define decentralization of a blockchain as the number of people who are uh, effectively using the node software, who are running software that interacts with the blockchain essentially and can validate the blockchain. But really, and, and the, the opposite view that I subscribe to is that, as you said, the only people that really matter in terms of the upkeep of Bitcoin, upkeep of the ledger, are the miners, the ones who are expending energy, proof of work. They're, they're kind of putting, uh, they've got skin in the game for mm. the maintenance of the ledger under the rules. So some people will say, you know, the, the metric that is important for decentralization is the number of people who run node software. Whereas I, I think it's very much, it, it's just the number of, nodes that are actually creating blocks who are exerting proof of work and one of the arguments because I, I really can't buy the, the the first argument about you know the people just running the node software and people will say mm. oh well we're still involved we're still it, we're still important to the system even if i run this software on a raspberry pi a really low powered kind of device uh there's not there's not doing proof of work they'll say um, it's still important because i can validate the blockchain i can check that everything is correct and then the question I always have is, okay, well, if something isn't correct, what can you do about it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. if you're not producing blocks, you, you can't affect the system, and that's why decentralization only really applies to the node network, the miners themselves, because they can actually enact change if there's something goes wrong. Yeah, just imagine this like guy living in his basement with a Raspberry Pi, thinking that he's contributing to the mining of like Bitcoin, and then going to one of these like mining farms that's worth like however many billions, and saying, "Look, no, no, actually, this transaction wasn't valid. Can you please update that?" Even like, no way. I mean, the whole question is though, and actually, this brings me on to the next point: is that when people think this is another kind of misunderstanding, I think, is when people think decentralized, and this kind of applies to DAOs as well. It's like they tend to think of like anti-government and outside the realms of regulation. And this is not true, like especially with, say, maybe proof of work systems and maybe other systems similar where you have quite public facing entities like to be a big actual contributing miner to BTC. You've got to have a huge mining setup. Right. And to have a setup that's that big, you have to also have a be probably quite a public facing, easily identifiable body. And with that kind of thing, like you should also be held to like legal account. Right. And I think there's a lot, this is misunderstanding. Decentralized means that no one's held accountable. It's distributed amongst all the people. But if we're saying these miners are big entities that are actually running the show, it's far more centralized than we think, then these miners should be held to account. And it doesn't seem like they are right now in a lot of spaces. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it, it, it's a difficult one because, yeah, a lot of them are corporate entities. And, and I, I know at least a few miners and mining pools have been, you know, like, uh, publicly traded companies so they have also fiduciary duties to their their shareholders and things so yeah I, I think that's something that will mature actually a lot in the future is what are the obligations on uh these entities the nodes which are act actively maintaining the network who are creating blocks and and who are contributing to the meaningful 
definition of decentralization that that is is useful. I mean, this this kind of we've got uh, Emma Pinas in the chat with a really interesting FAQ that often gets leveled. I think is that can blockchain actually exist without decentralization? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Do you have a do you, do you have a do you have a take on it? I think well, there are well alleged blockchains that do exist that aren't decentralized. Like I could quite easily have three separate computers that are either all in my house, that are all separate miners and say, I've got a decentralized network. But even if those, you know, three computers are, you know, 10 times the computer, or say a million times the computer power, so we've got some serious hash power. If they're all controlled by an entity like me, then if we're saying decentralization is all about the power dynamic and I am the power dynamic and I run all those miners, then it, it's not properly decentralized, right? And then even if like those computers who are mining are in different countries, but they're still owned by me, that this is not decentralized. And I've seen there's been like a lot of publications do it looking into how decentralized are a lot of these top cryptocurrency networks and all this kind of stuff. And they've got like a thousand proper miners. They're like, ah, but these thousand miners are all run by the same company or, you know, subsidiaries of this company. So it seems like, yeah, I think people would describe them as decentralized quite easily, but it's the power dynamic. Actually, it doesn't really make sense if it's not separate individual entities without maybe shared goals that don't work together and interact, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I'm aware of the kind of reports you're mentioning, like uh, there was an interesting study published. I think it was actually commissioned by the Pentagon in, in the US. Mm. Um, and and they, they did this report into what is, you know, how decentralized is Bitcoin in practice? And they, they kind of found that it's, it's maybe not so decentralized. But we'll, I think we'll come back to that point after. Um, you, you, you mentioned their kind of mining pools and things as well. And that's another dimension to this. So one of the, you know, we've talked about miners as, as kind of these individuals, like corporate entities so far. Uh, and obviously, to take it all the way back to the beginning of Bitcoin, it wouldn't actually have been like that. It was an, in the beginning, people in their in their bedrooms being able to mine because the hash rate was so low um, and it's the difficulty of mining has increased mm. uh, exponentially over time. But now, yeah, it's corporate entities. But you do have this one kind of subcategory of miners, which are called mining pools. Right. And these are mm. entities that. Uh, they they effectively aggregate hash power from many different sources. So that's how you as an individual might be involved in Bitcoin mining is you might contribute your, your hashing power, your electricity power to one of these mining pools. But again, you're still not uh, contributing to the, 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 the power in the system because uh, the political power or the rulemaking mm. power um, or rule enforcing power, I should say, in the system, because effectively the the, the coordinator, the, the corporate entity that's kind of making most of the money here, will be defining okay what transactions go in that block, which transactions are valid, and just giving uh, a block template that they say is valid to yeah to these hashing entities and say just hash on that. You, you don't care what's in that block. Let me worry about that. Um, but yeah, mm. but a point on that would be like if I contribute and then all of a sudden. I don't like what this party's doing that controls, you know, our mining pool. I can pull out, right? So isn't that like voting with my feet in a way and say, okay, well, I'm going to move to a different mining pool because I don't agree with this 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 transaction you just might have. Not saying that happens, but that is an option, right? Yeah, and that is that is a subtlety, right? It, it, it's true. If you are if you are pointing your hash rate at one provider, then you can you can move it to another. 
but that mm. it's, the, the, it is true that you never are an active decision maker. You know, you you, yeah. you could go to a different one that is in a kind of collusion or cartel with with the one you were with previously, and uh, and you still can't make the rules unless you're kind of independently um, mining blocks. So, yeah, it's a it's a difficult one. There are a lot of subtleties involved in in, in Bitcoin decentralization. And I think one of the other things that we kind of touched on earlier about the anti-government agenda, which I think is kind of inherent with this term, like when people think of decentralization, they think of like the biggest central authorities, which, you know, in a lot of ways are governments and all this kind of stuff. And I think that they kind of see cryptocurrencies and all the term, all the things around decentralization as a means to remove trusted intermediaries. And I think that is completely, it's impossible in my mind still. Like, sure, we can interact in a peer-to-peer fashion for very small transactions because there's not much skin in the game and all this kind of stuff. And maybe I just need you to give me an address and all this kind of stuff. But for like a lot of interactions we have, we're always going to need a trusted intermediary to facilitate that. Like if I don't know you are Jack Davis and you've been given this you know, passport by the UK um, but the UK government, or you've got this bank account that I can send money to and all this kind of stuff. It's really difficult for us to interact. And the only way to facilitate that kind of peer-to-peer interaction, especially like when we go talking about larger transactions and more important day-to-day usage, we do need some kind of intermediary or certificate authority to initiate that trust. I think one of the things that I want to emphasize around decentralization is it's not a complete removal of all intermediaries and definitely not of all trusted parties it's a kind of a push from the complete reliance of those trusted intermediaries in every single step to an initial trusted step and then we push the trust from them to the technology itself so they propagate the trust initially and give us the tools to trust one another but then we push our interactions and the trusted interactions onto the technology itself yeah i kind of would go i really like the way you described that and i kind of go one further you know (laughs) I do know the white paper quite well, and it and it talks about removing unnecessary intermediaries, right? So it's not saying mm. that third parties and intermediaries aren't important. I think it's actually much more the nature of those third parties, and the ones that we don't want are the kind of um, the rent-seeking, you would say, third parties that mm. basically capture the market, like your um, your Mastercards, Visas, because essentially, if you compare uh, Visa, Mastercard as a payment system or payments network. And then you compare that with something like Bitcoin. You've essentially got a network in something like Visa, which is a central point of failure, and it's it's non-competitive. So once you're once you're using that, there's no competition. They're just taking a fee mm. on your on your transaction, and kind of a percentage fee. Um, and in Bitcoin, what you have is you never actually submit to a single provider. So when you're paying, you know, a card payment, you're kind of choosing a provider, Mastercard. Visa, World Pay, or whatever, you're picking a provider and you're saying you have my transaction, and they say great, and uh, and and because you're our customer, we'll charge you whatever we want, and that's fine. Mm. What you're doing in Bitcoin is you're submitting it to a network of potential providers, so you don't actually pick your provider up front, and that's the key is that there's always it's always competitive, so all the nodes, okay. all the miners are constantly competing for your uh, for your for your fee that you're offering, basically. So that's why that's why it's um, it's more robust than it and, and why decentralization kind of matters is because it's 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 basically it's an the decentralization is an emergent property of Bitcoin because it's competitive, in my opinion. So because mm. um, 
if they're always competing for, for, for your for your fees, then you're going to have different parties. And this brings us on to another interesting point. So on the competition, this is makes sense to me for proof of work. Does this also apply for proof of stake, which is the new kind of consensus mechanism? When we talk about consensus mechanisms, consensus mechanisms, we did have a an episode on blockchain. We touched on it lightly, but it's effectively if we have these say three different miners who all own their own Excel file, which is the ledger. Um, the thing with you know, blockchains typically is you can't remove any of the previous kind of um, the previous fields or um, or pe- things basically in in the Excel file. You can only append. So the trick is if I have three different Excel files in three different locations run by three different people, how do we achieve consensus when we append? new entries to those Excel files. And there's different ways of doing that. The leading one, which was demonstrated by Bitcoin, was proof of work, kind of re- referenced there by Jack, competition to basically get there by increasing you know, the, the amount of work we do to basically choose this random number. But there's this new consensus mechanism, which is kind of taking a lot of headlines right now, which is a bit less, which is less energy efficient, which is called proof of stake. Does that still add the aspect you were talking about or have the aspect you were talking about with competition? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I, I think, yes, it still has that competitive nature because in both proof of work and proof of stake, essentially you have um, each 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 block is, is going to be mined by someone who's kind of selected at random, let's say, but it's not like a, a uniform distribution. Like you, mm. you basically buy more lottery tickets um, and the more lottery tickets you have, the more like you, likely you are to mine the block. And in proof of work, the, the lottery tickets you're buying are correspond to your your hashing power, the amount of energy you're expending, the amount the amount of machines you've got to hash. In proof of stake, it, the number of tickets you have corresponds to how much money you've put down mm. in the system, how much money you've you've staked. That's where, where the term comes from. And so the com- the competitive element is there, but what I think is the fundamental difference is that in proof of work, it, it kind of acts as a, a de-anonymization or a way of identifying who the participants are so you know that there isn't a central point of failure because you know mm-hmm. okay there are three or four big corporate entities you know some of them all registered companies as i said one of them could be a public listed company and the reason for that is it's very hard to hide if you have a massive mining operation i mean the size of these things is huge that mm-hmm. there's one in um uh, in El Salvador being powered by geothermal energy from a volcano. They're huge operations. Whereas in proof of stake, it's much easier to hide wealth because it's just mm. money. It's an account-based system. So, you know, you, you have multiple different addresses with money associated with them that are doing most of the, the voting on, on, on new blocks. But how do we know they're not all controlled by the same person or some conglomerate, you know? And maybe that is a central point of failure that we, it's not as easy to tell that there isn't one basically. Yeah, and when we're saying that one of the issues right now with like this whole decentralization, DAOs and all this kind of stuff, is that a lot of these organizations that are effectively running these huge businesses that a lot of people are dependent on, um, they're not kind of, they don't seem like they're properly regulated. They don't seem like they come under the same laws that you and I come under, Jack. And I, I hope that it seems like governments are starting to catch up with this and you know, are starting to actually push through, you know, legislation onto these companies to say, no, no, you are if you're operating in our country, you are beholden to our laws. And like you say, if it's a very publicly visible company with big mining operations, for example, that it's much easier to put get them under the thumb basically and start to regulate these people properly and make sure we don't have all these you know, Ponzi schemes and miners dropping off the face of the earth and loads of money being stolen and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's a nice segue that you're mentioning regulation, because uh, 
in 2022, there, there was quite a nice definition, I think, of, of decentralization introduced by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in America. And this this kind of backs up the definition I think we both subscribe to. So I'll read it out for you. So this was from Commissioner of the SEC, Hester Pierce, in 2020. So they said, decentralization essentially means it's not controlled and is not reasonably likely to be controlled or unilaterally changed by any single person, group of persons or entities under common control. So I think that's that's a really nice, concise way of saying it. And it captures that point about, you know, is it reasonably likely to be controlled by a single entity or group? And that's why, you know, proof of stake, I think, is it's harder to say it's unlikely to be controlled by some person. Hmm. And I think this whole idea of like control and controlling protocols kind of reminds me a lot of like, um, you know, the, going back more high level, the web one to web two to web three, like, you know, early days of web one, it was all open source. We saw lots of like individual small startups just spinning out companies as left, right and center and things were advancing very quickly. And then web two. Uh, these centralized parties all of a sudden start to dominate, you know, the, the Googles, the, the the Microsofts, whatever it was. And they started to develop like their own internal protocols, private protocols, potentially. Um, and they got all the users coming on. So all of a sudden it was quite difficult for people to say, develop on these protocols, not difficult, but they had to go through the companies. Right. And there's this whole thing that I've seen with like central companies when they have like good developers or good um, good projects built on top of them they then you know, they bring them in because obviously they want the users that come from that and then they turn into com competitors and they'll start to try and like replicate their product and actually make it better or they'll change the protocol and go in a different direction and there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with that and i think one of the things that i see from web3 and if we think of like saying bitcoin becoming the plumbing of the next internet it's like i've seen that in a, in a lot of places i think one of the things that we need to see in web3 is open protocols fixed open protocols that anyone can build on in a transparent way and i know that decentralization doesn't necessarily mean that but i think it's something that we do need to see yeah 100% i mean it's it's really good to you know make the call the comparison out between web2 and web3 because, yeah, all the this, this central companies have centralized control of the Internet in, in, in a way, right? We, we go to a single mm -hmm. company like Google for access to information. We go to a single uh, company for our, our, our posting photos on Instagram and stuff. And you see when this goes wrong, like I remember when Facebook went down and when Twitter goes down, you know, everyone goes crazy. And that's why there's this big push to, to, to Web3 based uh, social media models where it's kind of this federated idea you don't have one company in control it's a protocol based mm. social media so that different people can provide the data um, and there's not one company that's centralizing control of of, of um, access to that data basically so yeah it's a good comparison to make yeah and you see like it must be hard like, what was the whole twitter thing there's loads of companies that were built on feeds directly from twitter and taking data from twitter and then twitter all of a sudden just changed their entire protocol and it was like hundreds of millions worth of like companies were, were not companies and value of companies were lost because all of a sudden they couldn't work on Twitter anymore. It's like their entire business model is, there, is gone. Same with Amazon. Like people build, it's a bit slightly different comparison, but people will develop a product on Amazon. Amazon will take it, make it way cheaper, put it to the top of the search list and then just steal it. And it's there. It's like, it's, it's hard. It must be hard for developers. It must like stifle innovation to have to go through these quite closed barriers that are controlled by single central entities. And I'm, I'm hoping that this whole decentralization agenda even though it's not directly that, it helps that, with the, especially on the protocol level. 
Yeah, you're you're right. It's it's a it's like re, it can really disrupt the business models of people who use these, you uh, use Web two kind of um, business models because you know if Facebook changed their advertising algorithm, as has happened many many times, then this can affect everyone that's using it in, in a really you know detrimental way. Um, I feel like I want to talk a bit about you know we've alluded to the maybe the lack of decentralization in Bitcoin. But I want, to, I want to go into some specifics about, you know, how decentralized are these blockchains in practice? Mm. Because there are some interesting, uh, there are some interesting historical things that we've seen, right? And even if you just go looking today, right, I had a quick, I had a quick look on the kind of the mining distribution in, in Bitcoin. So That's your classic today, morning read, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. Before I do anything else in the morning, I've got to check, check the mining stats. So <laughs> as of today, Two miners in, in BTC control more than fifty percent of the of the hash rate. So are, are, are the decision makers on more than fifty percent of blocks? And if you go to just seven miners, that's ninety five percent, right? And th this 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 comes back to something we didn't mention: is decentralization is a spectrum, right? So we said it's no, it means no central point of failure. So that means anything basically more than um, two or three. Basically, it can be three nodes. In the system, that means there's no single point of failure. It could be a thousand nodes, and it's mm. a spectrum. People will say, "How decentralized is it?" Based on where where along that spectrum you fall. And what what are the benefits of saying, "Okay, so we've got three completely separate entities that are all mining"? Right? We'll say that there's it's a very small chance that all three of them can go down, or two of the three of them can collude. Right? So, that in, for all intents and purposes, they are separate, three separate miners. Is there any benefit in having five miners? Now, what is the benefit of having like an increasing decentralization after the point at which we say it's decentralized enough that we don't think there's a single point of failure? Yeah, it's it's an age-old question. I definitely I don't have the answer to this. I think um, I think it's something that will will kind of naturally be borne out. You know, what 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 are people comfortable with um, mm. will determine confidence in the system and therefore how many nodes there are. I mean. I, I, especially as Bitcoin scales, I think your nodes are just going to get bigger and bigger. They'll move from big corporate entities to, you know, unicorn size corporate entities. Mm. And maybe I think in the future, there'll be government entities will be, will be binding. I mean, maybe in the future, it's just governments when it gets that big. Um, so I think there's definitely an advantage to not necessarily just purely the number of nodes um, up to a certain point, but where they're located, what legal jurisdictions yeah. they're in i can definitely see it being a good thing to have one or two in each continent of the world for example because then it's mm. it's very hard to imagine a scenario where all of them all of them are compromised at once yeah and this becomes so hard when we're talking about like DAOs and them operating outside of like legal systems and the fact is like bitcoin ethereum they are global systems but they're run by miners in certain jurisdictions imagine if you know i'm in sub-saharan africa and all of a sudden bitcoins like the people that run bitcoin say all the miners are in america i don't think they are in america I think they're a bit more you know, distributed than that um they all of a sudden say, okay, you're not allowed to have this transaction because we don't agree with the merchant that you're sending to or something like this. Like, how is that going to work? Like, how do we have like global regulation for mining systems that are in certain jurisdictions? Yeah, so again, you give me all the tough questions now. Um, <laughs> my view on it is kind of that, you know, you know, have this concept of net neutrality and um, mm -mm. service providers like ISPs being it 
kind of not held responsible for the traffic that goes through them necessarily because they're not the originators. Mm. I think I think a similar model can apply in Bitcoin because you could say, well, the nodes because nodes aren't looking at your transactions and saying, oh, who's sending to who here? Mm. Because again, it's not always it's very hard to tell in most cases or data transactions. They're not saying, oh, I don't like this application. I'm not going to mine their transactions. They're, they're just purely looking at how profitable is it to mine this transaction. So yeah. I think some kind of similar neutrality policy could, could apply to them. But beyond that, it's difficult. You're right. It's the exchanges that do that typically, right? It's the exchanges mm. that come under the cosh because they know where money's actually being transferred. It's like it's not anonymous with them because they do KYC on your identities. And a lot of the AML that happens and when people's accounts get frozen, it goes through exchanges. But the same questions kind of apply. Like Coinbase is obviously a global operator with people all over the world using it, but it's based, well, partially based in the US and a lot of like the freezing, account freeze and all this kind of stuff is pushed on them by the regulators in the US. And it's a tricky one for kind of international systems to kind of be regulated in certain jurisdictions for the globe. Yeah, and, and, and if Bitcoin is that successful or any blockchain is that successful, that is, you know, getting massive, um, maybe even nation state actors as, as, as nodes, it's kind of in your interest to, to keep the, 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 the barrier to doing that low, not from a hash mm. power sense, but from a legal one, you, you want to limit the number of failure cases for why you might not be able to do something as a node, why you might not yeah. be able to continue operations. Um, and just as, as an example of, you know, how, how, why you need multiple ju jurisdictions is because a huge amount of the mining was previously in China and then they had this ban that kind of just completely destroyed it. I can't even remember if, if they lifted the ban. I think they might have, but for a number of years it was. Another thing we should touch on about decentralization is that it's not a static thing. It changes over time mm. and there's no more obvious way to think about that than you know think about the origin of Bitcoin. You would have had just one guy... <laughs> It, it was a centralized mm. system for all intents and purposes for the first however long, you know, <laughs> on, on, on day dot, you had effectively one miner. And for various periods from 2009 to 2012, who knows if it was just one miner at various times in that, you know. So people are happy. Bitcoin survived despite being heavily, heavily centralized in the past. Mm. And now we've kind of hit this kind of uh, maybe a happy medium of, say, three to ten nodes that are typically mining everything. Yeah, I mean, this kind of reminds me of the Ethereum DAO hack, like the giant fork mm. that we talked about in the, in the blockchain episode. Like that's that was a very centralized decision, right? I think a lot of people, I'm not sure whether I agree or not, but a lot of people say that it was Vitalik's friends who are people that supported him that lost a lot of this money. So it was in his best interest to, you know, make sure that the money was returned to them. And because he had like a good control over the, the miners at that stage, he was able to take most of Ethereum's network in the direction he wanted, which was actually to take the money back, right? Yeah. Do you, do you remember the details of that one about why that happened? Because be, I think it'd be good to just recap very, very briefly. Yeah. So my understanding is there was this, this dev, this decentralized um, autonomous organization that had a fund and they had a smart contract that was basically getting lots of money onto the Ethereum network. And some guy in the smart contract found a hack where he could basically take all the money. It was like, what was it, like 60 million or 100 million? Yeah. I, think it, I think it's worth like billions. I think it was 60. Now. Yeah, yeah. And obviously at the time, they're like, well, half a lot of the developers in the community were like, well, you shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't have manhandled the, the, the smart contract in the first place. And this is immutability manifest. Like you've lost the money because of a mistake you made. And now it's been transferred to this address that we can all see. And well, screw you. 
Uh, but obviously, the the fund itself was an example for Vitalik about all, how all these things could be used and what the future looked like. And I think he had some friends that were actually involved in the DARE fund as well. That was uh, what some of the conspiracies were. So he was like, no, no, I am going to make sure all the miners will return the funds, which is basically for them, just on the ledger. They can just say, input over here, push that input over here, and we can manually get around all this stuff. And this split the community. I think Vitalik took like 80% of the network with him, which was Ethereum as we know it today. And then the 20% who were like, no, this is not the principles of blockchain. This is not how it's meant to work. We're meant to stick with immutability. They forked off or went to Ethereum Classic and carried on. Um, that's my understanding. Yeah, I think I think that tallies up with my memory as well. And you know, this, yeah, this, this led to a big chain split between Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, and only only one of them really survived. But it it goes back to that definition of, of commissioned peers, right? And this was a case clearly of some kind of effectively a cartel of um, mm. developers and miners who decided amongst themselves we want to change, we want to roll back, right? They call these rollbacks, and in Bitcoin, people. This is really, you know, this is uh, this goes against all the sacred decentralization properties of Bitcoin to roll something back uh, as a unanimous decision. But even in Bitcoin, we've got historical precedent for this, right? So in, in 2013, there was a, a very similar situation where there was this accidental chain split because there was a network upgrade. There was an incompatibility between the old version of the software, the new version. And mm. people didn't like that. And they said, well, let's just roll it back. And they did, you know. So Bitcoin, we mm. said it's a mutable decentralized ledger, was rolled back and, and completely reversed the state of the ledger. And, you know, people go, okay, well, that was, that was 2013. You know, that was in the old days when it was just <laughs> a few people. But yeah. as recently as 2019, so, you know, when I was actually working in the space, uh, you may, may not recall this one, but there was, a, there was a hack of Binance, right? So basically the biggest exchange in the world right now. They were hacked for $40 million and they essentially started exploring the option of, of rolling back the the Bitcoin blockchain. So, so the CEO, Changpeng Zhao, started talking about this on Twitter and everyone lost their minds and they didn't do it in the end. But it shows you that there is there is a little bit of a, a weakness uh, to this decentralization when you when you start thinking about you know which actors like the exchanges are well funded, well motivated to try and influence the system. Yeah, well, I think they're known as a bit of a, a pirate exchange, right? Um, but it just goes to show that, you know, miners, they do control the network. We talk about it's decentralized, but they are effectively the network administrators. They can, with sufficient power, if they have like over, what, a 50% of the mining power, they can do whatever they want in the network and they should be held accountable for the things they do, right? Um, but yeah, so we've talked a little bit about what decentralization is. Shall we talk about whether it's good or bad? Talk about some of the positives and the negatives of the term generally and maybe the specifics within that? Mm, sure. So I think maybe I can start with saying I think overall it's a good thing because fundamentally, as I said, it's I think it's an emergent property of how Bitcoin works. So it's good because it, you know it's just a, it's a result of a functioning blockchain a functioning digital cash system so if you have a blockchain that's decentralized it's it's probably operating correctly right and uh, mm. and, and again it's 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 a, it's a better trust model um for for implementing a distributed non-fiat based currency or, or money i think yeah i think it, well when i think my definition from the, the network site which you said is distribution rather than uh, decentralization but i suppose they kind of apply it in both scenarios is resilience 
like the fact that we get such great network resilience from Bitcoin in a way because it's distributed across multiple computers, but in another way because it's decentralized across different entities in different places as well means there's never been a network failure to my mind of Bitcoin, which is impressive, right? For however long it's been going, there's never been a network failure. I think that's obviously a massive positive. Um, one of the other things is like we've talked about earlier is the opening things up. I think it's not inherent in decentralized networks as a whole, but it's part of the conversation of having these fixed protocols that aren't controlled by you know single central entities with their own agendas um, means that people can comfortably develop on it, know that things aren't going to change too radically because the network administrators, their incentive is to just maintain the network, is to get the token, because they get tokens, they're rewarded with tokens for actually maintaining the network, right? So what they want is people to be happy with the network, people to be coming to the network to use those tokens and to up the value of those tokens. So I think the separation of the motivations is quite important. And I think that enables the open protocols and the Web3 vision that we're talking about, right? Yeah, I, and I agree. I, I think it's, for me, it's not so much the the decentralization itself, right? I don't think it's the end. It's the things that cause it to be decentralized that are really good. Mm. So, you know, the incentive mechanism, as you said, the fact that it's open, permissionless, so anyone can join and compete. You know, you could always have a new mm. player join the network and compete. And the fact that it is always competitive is a very, very good thing, you know, because miners who offer a poor service, who don't, you know, process as many transactions, who are slower, they get punished directly, you know, because you know they it, they call it um like a red queen game, like you're always running one of these infinite games, um, on, mm. you know, running on the treadmill forever. It, only the fittest survive, and you have to maintain. It's not like you can just like you see with the Mastercard or Visa, you work hard to gain a position of superiority in the market, but then once you get there, you have this kind of closed uh, network with with sticky customers. Yeah. Whereas you don't have that in Bitcoin, you always have to keep working, which is, I think, a, a fundamentally very good thing. What about the bad? What do you, what do you think is a bad consequence of decentralization? I think some of the things aren't with decentralization itself. Like my thing is around like people's understanding of decentralization. It's like mm. it's not like Bitcoin's not going to take down governments. Like we're not going to never need central entities or trusted certificate authorities and all this. And there'll be no regulation and anarchy and all this kind of stuff like that annoys me about the space to be honest i think we're always going to need that like in the best case scenario bitcoin will work alongside governments right and it will actually enable governments like there needs to be an identity solution that is you know built in or works with bitcoin to actually take it to its full potential and i think people need to understand that the decentralized systems still need to operate within the law and that that is complex i think that's another bad side is that Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the biggest, you know, kind of decentralized networks in the world, they're, they're, well, they're global, they're all over the world, but they need to be regulated. And I think we really do need to see a global effort to regulate them consistently across the board. Otherwise, all the miners, you know, will just move to one place where there's no laws, but people will still be able to use it, right? And that that kind of is is a a disadvantage of of the system, I'd say. Yeah. And, you know, where do you sit on regulation right now? Like, do you think that um, do you think that miners should be directly regulated or do you think it's kind of the systems, the coins themselves need regulation or is it a combination of both? I think it is a combination of both. I think I have stronger opinions on the miners. I think miners do need to be regulated. And one of the reasons I think it's positive for them to be regulated, I think, if you know, if the US government gives 
a network or a miner, the seal of approval and says, you know what, we've actually done our due diligence here and Bitcoin miners are said they're going to comply. You, you, US citizens start using Bitcoin. Like that's going to be a boon for them, right? Loads of people are going to jump mm. onto the network and feel confident and comfortable interacting. Um, that That's the one thing I think will help adoption. But we also need to make sure that they do comply with laws. Like right? we can't have these, like I think in two ways. One, it will get rid of all these pirate networks and these Ponzi schemes and these cryptos that spin out of nowhere. If you suddenly have a seal of approval, say these are the safe ones, these are not the safe ones. I think that is going to be a big boom for the industry once regulation starts to catch up with the technology and both coins and miners are regulated. What do you think about regulation, Jack? It's a big topic. Yeah, and also I think I agree with everything you said. I think also an aspect that is not being discussed whatsoever and definitely needs to be for all the utility applications, the data applications we've talked about, is what what obligations do miners have about the data on the blockchain itself because you know mm. we've had cases in the past of illegal data being stored on the blockchain and who's responsible should it be redacted um the right to privacy and gdpr you know um right to be forgotten if some if some data is leaked on the blockchain and then there's an, a super injunction to get rid of it uh then you know how do you do that and i think it's all it's not like a technical problem it's more there's not clear there's not regulatory clarity on what the role of nodes is there but i think that will come um, and yeah, I think I just uh, regulation, as we always say, is, is, is inevitable. Um, just a, a final thought for me on kind of the negatives. I think you've alluded to it already with the DAOs, but I think decentralization is often used as a byword for kind of a lack of accountability, actually. So people mm-hmm. think, well, decentralized is just we're all in this together. We're in a herd mentality. Therefore, uh, <laughs> when when you don't have someone accountable, no one is right, which is very much yeah. not the case, I don't think. Um and, you know, I, I often think about this with smart contracts on Ethereum and people uh, who create um, DeFi, decentralized finance. Can't believe we haven't brought up that term. <laughs> Maybe another time. <laughs> I think DeFi is a whole episode in itself. Yeah. yeah. But decentralized finance, sure, it might be decentralized in how it operates. Um, you know, you, you put the contract on the blockchain and then anyone can use it, open permissionless, whatever. But mm-hmm. somebody has to write the contract in the first place, right? And should they be responsible yeah, yeah. for how that works and if they if they attract people to use it and then there's a security flaw as we've seen time and time again with these hacks who's responsible and how responsible should they be especially if it's it's been created by you know multiple different people uh, and open source developers and things and people often just shrug it off i think at the minute while regulation is catching up and mm. say well it's decentralized therefore no one's responsible by it. i don't think it <laughs> can operate like that yeah, no, I completely agree. Someone, yeah, I think like a lot of the laws we have do apply. It's just kind of retrofitting them and the education needs to be there for people to understand that someone is always accountable for something. Someone's the one that pushes the button. Someone's the one that signs the contract. Um, so on that note, what do you think the future looks like for decentralization? Yeah, I think um, I, I think the main question about it for me, again, if we regulation aside and all, all those points is, is what you mentioned earlier, like what is the optimal level on this spectrum of mm. decentralization? Uh, I think it's really, really interesting to see where that goes. So I think the most interesting thing that will happen in the future beyond the regulatory clarity mm-hmm. and, and what happens there is just seeing, you know, what, where Bitcoin and other blockchains land, what is the, what is the golden number? Um, so maybe not, not the most exciting point, but uh, I think it'll be interesting <laughs> to watch. What about you? I think, 
for me, it's around, I think, like we said, in decentralized network, there's a tendency to have more transparency, more open protocols. And I hope that's the case. I hope that we start to see, you know, lots of communities building on, you know, well, well, decentralized networks like Bitcoin, for example, as a protocol layer, that would really excite me. And I think the other thing is the education side. Like you said, people need to understand that decentralized doesn't mean you're outside the law and you have to be held accountable. And I'm hoping regulation catches up. I'm hoping that legal enforcement catches up just because it's going to mean that these systems are adopted by the biggest players in the world once the regulation catches up. We're going to see lots of people, real world applications being built on top of them. And that really excites me. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, the, the SEC and the Pentagon taking a stance on decentralization is is really is really positive. I think that's a, a great thing moving us forward. Okay, so I think that is a probably a good place to end. We've covered lots of ground there on, on decentralization. And, you know, for what can be a controversial topic, I think it was a uh, it, 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 it was pretty it was pretty good actually maybe we didn't have too much to disagree on uh certainly less so than maybe on the crypto episode but um yeah <laughs> with that said thank you at home for listening wherever you may be and we'll see you next time to untangle a little more of web3 Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.